One of the most notorious miracles in all the Bible is the feeding of the 5,000. Outside of the resurrection of Christ, it is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. The importance of this story cannot be overstated. We read of it in Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6. In every story, Jesus is portrayed as Jehovah Jireh, which means the God who provides. As you know, the last several weeks, we have been talking about what on earth are we doing? We're in the midst of a six-week study whereby we discover our purpose for being here on planet earth. And today, let it be known that you and I exist to minister in the name of of the Savior who provides with power and precision. So this morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 30 to 44. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 30. We'll read through verse 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to the heavens, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Earlier in chapter 6, Mark tells us that Jesus sent out the 12 disciples two by two. He gave them power and authority. They preached under the power of Christ. 
They had the authority to drive out demons and heal the sick. When they came back to Jesus, they were exhilarated and exhausted. Spiritually, they were on cloud nine, but physically, they were depleted. And so Jesus said to his disciples, let's get into a boat and let's go over to the other side. Apparently, when the crowd realized that the band was back together, they all gathered around Jesus and the disciples. There were so many people that came that day that Mark tells us that the disciples were so busy they didn't even have time to eat. Now, you know it's busy when 12 hungry preachers can't even eat. And on this day, the disciples said to Jesus, we're being hard-pressed, we're exhausted. Jesus could see that they were just completely wiped out. So he said, let's get into the boat, let's go over to the other side. It is Luke who tells us that they went from Capernaum to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is only a few miles away. It doesn't take very long, but the disciples got into the boat and they set sail with the master. Jesus wanted to be alone with the disciples. The disciples needed to be alone with Jesus. You know, if you and I are going to do any type of ministry that matters, there have to be times when we have boat time with Jesus. There are times we just have to get in the boat with our Lord. Because let it be known this morning that ministry for Christ must be preceded by ministry from Christ. Before you can do anything effective for the Lord, the Lord must do something upon your life. In order for you to serve Christ, Christ must serve you. There are times that all of us need to have some boat time with Jesus. Just to have in the regular rhythm of everyday life, all of our weeks, to spend some time away with the Lord. Now let it be known, this is no license for laziness. It doesn't mean that you can't do anything or you're not supposed to serve anywhere because you need boat time with Jesus. No, this is not a license for laziness. I have a friend who tells me that one of the problems in the church is that we have too many pew potatoes. People just sit in the pew. He'll he'll say, instead of standing on the promises, all we do are sit in the premises. We just kind of sit in the general area and we don't do anything and get off our keister and serve Christ. And, and I understand that and I agree with that. There are 20% of the people that do 80% of the work, but let it be known that before you and I even think about doing real genuine ministry for the Lord, we've got to have some boat time with Christ. Because ministry for Christ must be preceded by ministry from Christ. Jesus and the disciples got into the boat. They traveled a few miles from Capernaum to Galilee. We are told that the crowd recognized them because they were celebrities. They recognized Jesus and the disciples, and so they ran afoot, and they got around the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee on foot faster than Jesus and the disciples could get there by boat. They ran from the area of Capernaum all the way around to the area of Bethsaida. And there they waited for Jesus. When Jesus landed, we are told that he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion. The disciples looked like deer in the headlights. They had never seen a crowd this large. Matthew, like the others, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that there were some 5,000 men that were fed that day. It's Matthew who says that that number doesn't include women and children. So most conservative estimates believe that 
on that day, there were some 20,000 people that showed up. There were 5,000 men. We can assume that there were at least that many ladies, so another 5,000. Because the way people traveled in those days, they traveled as families. So in the days of antiquity, we can also assume that there were at least as many children as there were adults. You begin to do the math, and it quickly becomes that a conservative estimate is on that day, 20,000 people showed up. The disciples had never seen a crowd this large. They get out of the boat, and they are bug-eyed. I mean, they are amazed, and Jesus is filled with compassion. Jesus isn't stressed. Jesus isn't overwhelmed. Jesus is filled to the brim with compassion. In fact, we are told that he looked upon the crowd as if they were sheep without a shepherd. That language is rich, dripping with symbolism. In the Old Testament, God is described as the shepherd who carries the lambs close to his heart. It was King David who said that the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus will say of himself in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Jesus looked at the crowd. They looked like sheep without a shepherd. They looked like people without a leader. Now, Mark does a marvelous job of painting this story right beside his previous passage. For in that previous passage, we find a story about King Herod. And what Mark is doing is he's putting side by side a story about King Herod versus King Jesus and how King Herod is no match for King Jesus because King Herod is pathetic, but King Jesus is awesome. The people of Galilee had a king. They had a leader. His name was Herod. But in the previous passage, Mark tells us that he was pathetic Herod had an illicit affair with uh, one of the wives of his brother. And it was John the Baptist who spoke out against this illicit affair. John the Baptist was not bashful. In fact, he was very bold and adamant that what Herod was doing was wrong. In an effort to shut him up, Herod threw John the Baptist into prison. Well, one day we're told that Herod threw a party for all of his rowdy, rebellious friends. And the daughter of his mistress came in. And she danced erotically for all the boys. This pleased King Herod so much that he said to her, I promise I'll give you whatever you ask. She quickly ran back to her mother and said to the mistress, what should I ask for? And she said, you ask Herod to put the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. The young girl comes back. She makes the request of King Herod, and now King Herod is between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't want to destroy John the Baptist, but yet he knows he's made this promise in the presence of all of his dinner guests. So he issues the execution order, and John the Baptist's head is severed from his body, and that head is placed on a silver platter and brought to the mistress of the king. One of the reasons Mark tells us that story is to show us that King Herod is sinful, selfish, and sinister. And when you compare it to King Jesus, the stark contrast is so obvious because King Jesus is caring, he's concerning, and he's compassionate. He looks upon the crowd and he is filled with compassion for they are sheep without a shepherd. They're not overwhelmed, but the disciples are. Jesus is not overwhelmed, but the disciples don't know what in the world they're going to do. 
And Jesus says, don't worry about it. And for much of the day, he teaches the word to them. I can well imagine he probably also healed the sick and calls the lame to walk, the blind to see. Towards the end of the day, the disciples come to Jesus. They say, Master, it's getting late. Everybody's hungry, and quite frankly, we're hungry as well. Why don't you send the crowds away? Let them go to the neighboring villages and countryside. Let them buy something to eat. Because the last thing we need is a mob who's in a hungry frenzy. So why don't you just send them away? Sounds like a good idea, right? Until you begin to think about the logistics. Where are 20,000 people going to go? The closest marketplace is Bethsaida, but that's a village of only 2,000 people. Capernaum's not that far, but in those days, that was a neighboring city of only about 3,000 people. So together, that's only about 5,000 people. There are 20,000 individuals in that crowd. Where are they going to go? All of Galilee has shown up. There's not enough food in the entire region to feed all these people. Where are they going to go? And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, which I think probably with a smirk on his face, you give them something to eat. The disciples would have made great Baptist. The reason I say that is because their first response is, we can't afford that. You ever heard Baptists say that? A great idea goes forth. We can't afford that. That's what the disciples said. Are you meaning to tell us you want us to spend eight months of a man's wage in order to give one morsel of bread to everybody on this hillside? That's ludicrous. That's crazy. What are you talking about, Jesus? They thought Jesus was joking. And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? They said, Jesus, you want us to actually look around and try to find as many loaves as possible? And Jesus said, go and see. It's only John who tells us about that little boy who had a knapsack. But all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, come to the same conclusion that all they could find were five loaves of bread and two fish. Sometimes we're so familiar with this story that we just kind of gloss over the details. But as I read this story, I, I ask some serious questions. First of all, is this the only boy in this ginormous crowd that has a responsible mom? The disciples look all over the place. And the only thing they could find is one boy who has a sack lunch. Is this the only boy who had a mother that thought, you know what, we may be gone a long time. Maybe we should pack Junior something to eat. And, and furthermore, how did Andrew get this? I can well imagine that it's Andrew who runs back up the hill and says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I stole this little boy's lunch, but don't worry, don't worry. It's like taking candy away from a baby. It's not a problem. And then, then I look at the lunch and on the one hand, I praise this boy's mother for her forethought. But then on the other hand, I think to myself, what was she doing? She gave this boy five loaves of bread and two fish for lunch? When I was growing up, a loaf of bread would last us about a week. This boy's got five loaves in one lunch. If this boy eats that much bread, his digestive system will be stopped up for days. <laughs> right? What is this mother thinking? And then I realized, now wait a minute, it's not like five loaves of Wonder Bread. 
We're talking about five crackers. We're talking about five little pieces of baked bread. We're not talking about two 10-pound snappers either. We're talking about a couple of minnows. This boy has a meager lunch. It's a couple of crackers and a couple of sardines. That's it. The disciples get back together and they say, this is all we've got? This is it? And they say to the Lord, all we have, a handful of crackers and a couple of small fish, five loaves of bread and two fish. The point is that it reinforces the reality that this is a meager lunch from a meager boy. How in the world is it going to feed 20,000 people? Have you ever gotten to the place in ministry where you said to yourself, what difference can I make? I don't have anything. You ever gotten to the place where you just feel a little bit overwhelmed? You look at the needs that are around you and you say to yourself, how in the world can I do anything to make a dent for the advancement of the kingdom of the gospel here or there with this or with that? I can't do anything. All I've got is just a meager offering. What can I do? I've got to be honest with you, my friend, that whenever I get to the point that I feel overwhelmed, it's then when a holy hunch begins to kick in that God is about to do something great. Because real ministry, first and foremost, ministry for Christ must be preceded by ministry from Christ. But secondly, real ministry is humanly impossible. When you get to the spot when you realize, I can't do anything in and of myself. I can't do anything to actually help. I can't do anything that's going to cause a lasting difference for all of eternity. I can't do anything because it's humanly impossible. It's at that moment that God's about to do something spectacular. Are you overwhelmed by the 206,000 people that live in Shelby County, Alabama? Are you overwhelmed by the needs of the 650,000 plus people that live in Jefferson County, Alabama? Are you overwhelmed by the volume of desperate need that exists in 1.1 million people that live in the greater Birmingham area today? When you stop and consider the crisis of our culture the condition of our country. Are you ever overwhelmed by the 310 million Americans and those are just the legal ones that live in the United States of America? Today, there are more than 7 billion people on planet Earth. Does that blow your mind? How in the world can we make a kingdom difference? How in the world can we make a dent in the depth of need that exists all around us. Ah, we can't do anything. All we have is something that is meager. All we have is a little bit here and a little bit there. We've got five loaves of bread and two fish. What can we do? Ministry that makes a difference is always humanly impossible. And Jesus says to his disciples, I want you just to sit the crowd down on the green grass in groups of 50 and 100. Put 50 there, put 200 back there, put 150 there, put 75 over there. Just put them in smaller groups. Break down the 20,000 into more manageable people groups. And give me the bread and the fish. 
It was John MacArthur who said, if you ever stop and think about this, what Jesus produced that day was a massive feast. If five loaves of bread and two fish is enough to feed a a boy or a child, how much food does it take to feed a man or a woman? Or if there were any bottomless pitted teenagers in the crowd, how much food does it take to fill them? You begin to do the math and you realize that on this day, Jesus must have produced at least 150,000 pieces of bread. And on this day, in this moment, he must have produced over 60,000 fish. Jesus is standing on top of the hill, producing, producing, producing. He is blessing and producing, blessing and producing. 150,000 pieces of bread and 60,000 fish. And once again, it's John MacArthur who says that Jesus is producing barley bread from grain that had never grown in the cursed ground. And he's producing fish that had never swam in polluted waters. Because of the original sin of that was introduced because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. All of creation was tainted from the ground to the water, to the beast of the field, to the fish of the sea, to the birds of the air. And yes, humanity, everything tainted and touched by sin. But on this day, Jesus is producing bread that's never been planted in the cursed ground. And Jesus is producing fish that had never swam in polluted waters. And Jesus is there on the top of the hill, producing, producing, producing. And what's he doing? He's giving it to his disciples. And in turn, the disciples are giving it to the groups of people. Now, the disciples, they would have had baskets. They kind of like some sort of a, a wicker basket. Some of us would call it a purse. Now, don't get offended by that. You've seen the biblical movies. They're already wearing dresses. So it doesn't really matter if they're carrying purses, right? So the disciples would have been there on the hillside, and as Jesus produced, he would have placed it there in the basket. They would have taken the basket and run down the hill and served this group. When their basket was empty, they turned around, ran back up the hill, got more blessing from the Lord, went back down the hill, gave it to this group. When they were empty there, they ran back to Jesus. They got more bread and fish. They went back down to another group. It was constant flurry of up the hill, down the hill, up the hill, down the hill, up the hill, down the hill. I don't know how long it takes but it takes a mighty long time to feed 20,000 people. Up the hill, down the hill. And this food, which was produced by ingredients that had never been touched and tainted by sin, must have tasted really good. This is the way food was supposed to taste. This is how banquet table food is going to taste. And I'm sure that more than one person said to the disciples... Please give our compliments to the chef. Who is that on the hill producing 
this fish like we've never tasted before and this bread like we've never had before. Who is that? And as the disciples are serving, they're testifying. It's Jesus. I'll be right back. I've got to get some more. And so they run back up. They get more. They come back down. By the way, this comes from Jesus. They go back up. They get some more. They run back down. By the way, this is from Jesus. The whole time they are serving, they are testifying about Jesus. What they receive from Jesus, they give to others. They receive it and they give it. They receive it and they give it. My friends, that's real ministry because at the bottom line, all we do is we give people Jesus, which we have received. And so all day long, giving and receiving, giving and receiving. It's Mark who tells us that everybody had their fill. They were completely satisfied. It's the, it's the imagery of a horse with a feed bag around his mouth. He's eating, he's eating, he's eating till he can't eat no more. Completely satisfied. As they're satisfied, they begin to disperse. The disciples come and they say to Jesus, boy, we're hungry. And the author tells us that they picked up 12 basketfuls of bread and fish. As a boy hearing this story, I always thought the disciples were kind of like the sanitation crew that came through the fairgrounds after the county fair. Picking up trash, picking up junk, picking up scraps. Just going around, picking up things that nobody else wanted. But the text doesn't exactly say that. The text says that they had 12 basketfuls of bread and fish left over. Maybe they received this food from the feet of Jesus. Each one of them have a basket. Jesus produces just enough bread and just enough fish to not only satisfy all the hungry mouths of 20,000 people, but also the hungry mouths of his servants, the disciples. I think it's at this moment that they begin to realize that they've just been part of one of the greatest miracles known to man. They're eating this bread. They're eating this fish. There's not an extra morsel lying around. Jesus produced just enough. And they're eating this food that tastes like nothing they never had before. And they say, Jesus, in this moment, all we were doing was giving what you've given to us. We received and we gave. We received and we gave. And you not only met their needs, but you adequately, perfectly met our needs. It's in this moment that the disciples understand that this is real ministry. For real ministry is ministry for Christ must be preceded by ministry from Christ. Real ministry takes place when you and I realize that what we're doing is humanly impossible. And real ministry occurs when we give them all we have, which is Jesus. We just give what we have received from the Lord. It's John who tells us the next day that many of those people came back to Jesus because they thought he was an entitlement program. They thought he was a handout. They said, yesterday, 
We got our bellies filled. And yesterday, we got our family members healed. So, Lord, we want to follow you. And in the next chapter in John's gospel, John uh, records the words of Jesus. And Jesus simply says, now, wait a minute. The only reason you're here is because you want a handout. And then he says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never go hungry. Who believes in me will never be thirsty. I hear this story. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's got to tell me it's an important story. And what is the point of the story? I think what the gospel writers want us to know is that we serve in the name of the Savior who provides with power and precision. With power and precision... Jesus healed, uh, fed 5,000 men, 5,000 women, and 10,000 children. With power and precision, Jesus even fed the 12 disciples. With power and precision, Jesus met all their needs and not one morsel was left on the ground. With power and precision, Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem. With power and precision, Jesus healed the lunatic named Legion. With power and precision, Jesus healed the woman who had an issue of blood for some 12 years. With power and precision, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. With power and precision, Jesus died on a cruel cross for the sins of the lost world of humanity. With power and precision, Jesus was raised on the third day. With power and precision, Jesus ascended into the heavens with a promise he'll come back again. With power and precision, Jesus healed my sin-sick soul. With power and precision, Jesus puts a roof over my head, clothes on my back, and air in my lungs. With power and precision, Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. With power and precision, Jesus gives help to the helpless with power and precision Jesus puts a smile on my face and a spring in my step with power and precision he says I was made for his glory with power and precision Jesus meets needs of those around me with power and precision Jesus uses me in spite of me with power and precision Jesus does the impossible oh my friend he's called us to ministry ministry that is powerful ministry that is precise with power and precision we serve so this causes me to stop to sing to shout I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and I wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean oh how marvelous oh how wonderful and my song shall ever be oh how marvelous oh how wonderful is my Savior's love for me with power and precision What on earth are we doing? Why are we here? We are here to serve in the name of the Savior who provides with power and precision. Because real ministry is ministry when you and I realize that ministry for Christ must be preceded by ministry from Christ. We've got to have some boat time with Jesus. And real ministry is when you and I get to the point where we say, the need is so overwhelming, this is humanly impossible. And real ministry is simply giving to others 
what God in Christ has given to us. So as we run up and down the hillside, we're serving and we're testifying. We're serving and we're testifying. And when our basket's empty, we run back up the hill and get more from Jesus so we can turn around and go back down the hill and bless somebody in Jesus' name. Jesus is the Savior who provides with power and precision. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. If there is one listening to my voice who has never trusted you as the powerful, precise Savior, then tonight, this day, I pray that they will accept you as Lord. Oh, Father, if there's one who's here, who's a believer but in need, need of healing, need of help, has a need just to say, thank you, God, for how good you are. Lord, may that individual know that the altar's open. As we give you this time of invitation, we pray that you will move and will respond that you'll find us obedient unto you. Oh, Father, help us to have spontaneous obedience unto the Spirit's call. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.